We call those plane flights zero-G flights. They're just, there's a, you know, I haven't been up into the Andes yet, but there's a flight like that into Tegucigalpa in Honduras where you're up, up, up over the mountain and then, man, you're down and, like, and you're weightless for about a minute. The contents of your stomach are weightless, I should say. Anyway, let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 6. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of this remarkable book of Christian history, uh, telling us what was going on in the early church, the first church of the first century, a story that really has no end until the rapture of the church by Jesus Christ. We are still writing chapters in this book. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15 is our text. The topic is Stephen. He's getting ready to be martyred in chapter 7. Although slandered and seized, Stephen sits with his face glowing. The title of our message, To Boldly Glow. (laughs) Verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Let's pray. Lord, guide us through these few verses this morning with a proper respect for Stephen and his uh, preparation here for martyrdom, Lord. At the same time, I pray that we would have the understanding that he was a man of like passions as we are. In many ways, ordinary, average, and every day. And yet you were able to use him in some pretty remarkable ways. I pray we would in every sense identify with him as he identified with you, Jesus. Chances are most of us, probably all of us, will not be martyred in this way. But every day, Lord, we face struggles and trials. We have decisions to make. And within those We want to shine and be bold for you. We want others to look upon us and see something of Jesus Christ revealed, something that they would long for and desire in their own lives, Lord, to help them get through this difficult thing that we call life. I pray for brothers and sisters who are here this morning struggling in some area, Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit and a sense of your sufficient grace. 
And if there's anyone here, Lord, still in their sins, they've never asked for the forgiveness of their sins and received Jesus as their Savior, Lord, may your Holy Spirit come upon them and show them the beauty and the wonder of your love for them, how you died and rose from the dead just for them so that they might live forever with you in heaven. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said amen. I am fascinated with things that glow in the dark, have been ever since I was a kid. By far my favorite is something called pixie dust. Anybody know what I'm talking about? A couple of you. In the rooms of the Disneyland Hotel, there's a wallpaper border all around the top near the ceiling. During the day, if you leave your blinds open, it will absorb the light. At night, it gives off for several hours a glow. It's really cool. It doesn't start right away. You think it's broken. <laughs> and you kind of peek out, and it's pitch black. You know those motel rooms, they're pitch black. They've got curtains that weigh 3,000 pounds, you know. <laughs> they could save you in a nuclear blast. And, and you just have to, that's what it says. There's a sign on the wall, in case of nuclear attack, wrap yourself in a curtain. But anyway... Uh, and, and all of a sudden, it starts to glow, and all the way around, there's this really cool, and during the night, you know how you don't sleep very well in hotels, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you expect it to be, no, it's still glowing. I think it's nuclear <laughs> by itself, tell you the truth, but anyway, so you fall asleep with Tinkerbell spreading pixie dust over you. It's just magic. Moses is mentioned in our verses and will be a central figure in Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. You might recall a glow-in-the-dark moment in Moses' life. After meeting with God, Moses would come down from Mount Sinai and his face would be glowing, the Bible says in Exodus 34. Moses was exposed to God and he'd retain the glory for a time before it would fade away. Looking at Stephen, the people saw, and it's described as the face of an angel. In their culture, it meant that he was glowing as Moses did because he'd been in the presence of God. When Moses spoke to the Jews about God, he would put a veil over his face to hide the fact that the glory of God was fading away. The fading glow of Moses' face was put in the Bible to be a spiritual illustration for us. The law that was given to Moses was glorious, but it must eventually fade away. No one could keep the law. It only showed a person how far short you fell from pleasing God. The law must one day be replaced by something that would not fade. That something is a relationship with Jesus Christ and the filling of his Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was glowing, and it wasn't fading. He was evidence that the glory of the law had been replaced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Should we glow? Well, yes, we should, because in 2 Corinthians you read, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is a, an application of that story of Moses. We are looking and our faces are unveiled. We see in the mirror of God's word the glory of the Lord and continue to be getting more and more glorious. 
Now, we may not glow physically, but we should glow spiritually, especially against the dark world all around us. We should stand out from it as if we are glowing from within. We can look at the traits and the portrait of Stephen to see how we too can be glowing. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, list the traits that most control you. And number two, look at the portrait that best captures you. First of all, in verses eight through 10, list the traits that most control you. Stephen will, in just a few verses, become the first martyr of the church age. His mom and dad probably had something very different in mind when they named him. You see, Stephen means crown. Whatever crown they hoped their son would one day earn and wear, it probably wasn't the crown of a martyr. Yet in retrospect, it was far more precious than any earthly crown. By the way, just a lesson to the wise. If you named your child and don't know what the name means, don't look it up. frightening some of those (laughs) anyway if you're going to name a child look it up so that uh, you know people say oh your name means one to be despised or something like you know I mean names have a bigger meaning in you know in some parts of the world than they do here so just just a word to the wise now without taking anything away from Stephen we should look upon him as I said in our opening prayers an average everyday ordinary believer He wasn't an apostle. Now, true, he's considered one of the first deacons, but if you were with us last week, we talked about how they they didn't really establish the office of a deacon. He wasn't ordained as a deacon of the church. He was one of seven guys who were to serve widows in the church, and the idea was there were probably a number of people who could have fit that criteria. In fact, every believer ought to fit the criteria that Stephen fit in order to qualify as a servant. And so we we don't want to think of him in any special way as being a person that we could not aspire to be. And if we look at Stephen as representing an average, everyday, ordinary believer, then certain traits will emerge from this account. We list them, and then we can examine ourselves by them. And the first two of them are in verse 8. Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, let's talk about wonders and signs first. Those are not traits. Those are a ministry that he was performing. And what we learn here about this, which is interesting, is that wonders and signs were not confined to the apostles. Conservative Bible scholars are always trying to confine wonders and signs to the apostles or at least to the first century. They don't want to have to admit that miracle signs and wonders might continue throughout the whole church age because it doesn't fit into their system of theology. Uh, and, And quite honestly, that's the only reason. There's no biblical reason to think that God is incapable of using a person to uh, work miracles, signs, and wonders. And so I just want to point that out. Uh, People always ask, well, how come we don't see more of these things happening then? Uh, One reason is I just don't think we believe that they're going to happen. And there is a certain element of faith, and uh, if you're told that these things don't exist, if you go to a church that tells you that if you do certain things, you're actually demon-possessed, then you're certainly not going to learn very much about that. 
There are, we're off the subject of signs and wonders, but uh, you know, the, in the area of some of the gifts of the Spirit, same thing, that they've passed off the scene. And there are those who will tell you, you know, that if you speak in tongues, for example, that that's demonically inspired. The other end of the spectrum are people who tell you if you don't speak in tongues, you can't even be a Christian. So I understand the confusion. And we're just trying to be balanced. Stephen, average, ordinary, everyday guy helping serve the widows, uh, distributing goods and, and materials to them. And then God decided that uh, he was faithful in the little things. He could be faithful with greater things. And he started doing wonders and signs among the people. Now, the first two traits that contributed to Stephen's glow were faith and power. It says he was full of faith. Now, I'm told by scholars that faith should be translated grace because in the best manuscripts, it's the Greek word charis, which is the word for grace or gift. And so he was full of grace is what we want to say. Now, on the one hand, grace means that you fully understand that God saved you by grace alone through faith alone. You didn't merit salvation, and you could do nothing to earn it. And one of the things that does is it creates in you a sense of gratitude to God. You realize that you would be lost eternally were it not for God's plan and the unfolding drama of redemption and His sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and rise from the dead. And, And thinking about the alternative of working to earn your salvation and ending up at the throne of God being uh, told that it was insufficient because you stand there in your own righteousness and being cast into hell. I mean, that, there's a gratefulness that should come, a joy of our salvation. And that can play out in this way, no matter what your life holds, no matter what you're going through, as Jacob mentioned in his passage to ponder, whether you're abounding or abased, you can continue to be grateful to God for your salvation. And you can find a grace in your struggles and trials that is sufficient for you to continue on until that great and glorious day when you see the Lord face to face. Another way of looking at being full of grace means that you are always representing God as a God of grace. We mention frequently here Uh, the idea of properly representing God, uh, of letting people know what Jesus was really like, not some of the cultural caricatures and and, uh, misunderstandings of God, but uh, of really portraying God as gracious and merciful and long-suffering and and slow to anger and all of those things. And, And sadly, so often, it's not always accurate, but Christianity has been labeled as kind of a judgmental condemning religion when really it's this beautiful relationship with the most beautiful, wonderful person that's ever lived. And so we want to always portray that and represent that. It says here that Stephen was also full of power. It's the Greek word dunamis. It's that power that Jesus told them to wait for in the upper room and then they would be able to go forth doing ministry. We call it the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so we would say that Stephen understood that by faith he could go forward and do all things through Christ who strengthened him. 
and he was just going from place to place, from person to person, waiting upon the Lord, doing what the Lord told him to do. One minute he was serving widows their meal or distributing monies and goods to them. The next he was being used to perform signs and wonders in front of the people, walking in the power and the energy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we won't see the next trait until verse 10. In the meantime, the story advances a little bit in verse 9. It says, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freed men, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Synagogue worship probably started when the Jews were exiled in Babylon. They were away from their temple for 70 years. And so they would gather for instruction in these small groups, these synagogues, uh, instruction from the law of Moses. After the return to the Holy Land, many Jews remained dispersed, but even in the Holy Land, they continued to meet in the synagogues for instruction on the Sabbath day. Now, a synagogue would be named according to the type of people who gathered there. I was running this through my mind this morning and wondering if they named churches that way, what the name of our church would be. I'll just let your mind kind of wander. I don't want to get into any more trouble than I normally am in. But uh, literally, hopefully, our church couldn't be uh, identified. No church should be identified by a particular group of people. We're, we're really to be from all walks of life from all ethnicities, uh, we're the true melting pot, the church, where everyone comes together and is made one in Jesus Christ. But in these days, they had the synagogues, and they represented different people, uh, you know, who worshiped there. And the freedmen were slaves who had won or purchased their freedom from Rome. And so that's pretty simple. They were freed men. These were from parts of northern Africa and Asia. It says they were disputing with Stephen. Now, what would happen in the synagogue? The synagogue uh, encouraged lively debate over the scriptures. And, and they, they love to debate one another and get deep into the word of God uh, back and forth like that. And so this was a, a common thing. Stephen would come in. Uh, apparently, this was a, a common technique that the first Christians used among the Jews to minister to them. They would go into the synagogue. Here you have a group of people who already believe that the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, is the word of God. And then they would talk about uh, Jesus from that scripture. They'd say, hey, let's, let's talk about Isaiah 53. Who do you think the prophet's talking about here? Because it sounds a lot like Jesus of Nazareth. Or how about Psalm 22? You want to spend some time in Psalm 22? Man, is ooh, look, I, I think Jesus said that on the day of his crucifixion. I wonder if this is a about Jesus. And so they would have these debates. And this was normally a welcome thing, but in this case, the freedmen, uh, they, they were mad because they were losing these debates. And they had kind of sour grapes about it. And so it says in verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. These are the two other traits that we want to talk about, the wisdom and the spirit. Now, they are true tra two, <laughs> two traits, but they are linked together. They depend upon each other. Wisdom here refers to knowledge of spiritual truth gleaned from the word of God. But wisdom is more than accumulation of such knowledge. 
It is the right use of that knowledge, and for that you require the Spirit of God. And when you've got both of those together, knowledge of God's Word and the Spirit leading you, then you're going to be in a good situation. As I just mentioned, take Stephen, Jesus before him, Paul after him. They knew their audience. They were talking to Jews. And so they knew that they could use the Old Testament as their reference and say, I absolutely believe this is the word of God, and I'm going to show you from it that what I'm telling you is true, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God come in human flesh, just as all the prophets said, he, is and are, he was and is our Messiah, all of those things. Later on, the apostle Paul, who was a classically trained Pharisee, when he would go out into the Gentile world, he didn't open to Isaiah 53 because the Gentiles didn't know, they had no context, no background. And so he would talk to them from their culture. Once on Mars Hill, his famous encounter on Mars Hill that we'll get to, he talks about how he'd been around the city and saw these shrines to various gods. And he said, I saw a shrine to the unknown God, just in case you forgot one. If you believe in many gods and they're pretty angry, you don't want to miss one. He might be the god of I'm going to kill you while you're asleep and you don't know that. And so you think you've got it covered and then all of a sudden you think, well, just to be sure, we'll make one shrine. It can be to the unknown god. And so when that god gets mad, there it is. We just didn't know your name, but that's for you, buddy. And, uh, and so, you know, and so Paul picked up on that and he says, let me, I want to tell you something about this God who is unknown to you. He's the God of creation. And he began to speak about the God of the Bible. And this is why it's, it's not wrong to have a program of evangelism or of witnessing or, or different programs. We have programs from time to time. But you can't think that, that you're going to, you know, have one message that's going to always reach people because they all come from different backgrounds. You don't want to change the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you want to get people eventually to the Word of God, and you want to use the Word of God, but you have to know where people are coming from. And, and, and so this is where the spirit and wisdom come in. And so, you, so what, what do we do? We study and we learn and we study and we learn. And then when we encounter people, we are led by the spirit, hopefully. And we're careful not to always use our Christian language. You know, Christians have a kind of pig Latin that they speak that, that only we understand. You know, you go around telling people that you've been you know, saved, you're sanctified, you're going to be glorified one day, you know, and, and, and it's, it's great, you know. Uh, hey, uh, you, know, you know, you're going through a, a difficult time at home. I want to talk to you about justification by faith. What? I don't want to go to court any more than I have to, you know. I mean, people hear different things. They don't know what you're talking about. And, and we certainly live in a post-Christian culture where most people... Uh, you know, their knowledge of the Bible is really very limited. I was listening to Greg Laurie the other day, and there was a poll taken, and people asked, you know, who were, what was Sodom and Gomorrah? And, and there's a lot of people who think it was a husband and wife in the Old Testament. They don't, know, they don't even know the story. So we as Christians, what do we do? We're always talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. 
San Francisco's like Sodom and Gomorrah. And people are thinking, well, I guess they didn't have a happy marriage <laughs> because they don't understand the reference that we're making to. And, and so we want to be careful about these things. And so we need uh, wisdom, and, but we also need the spirit. Now, these four traits emerge from Stephen, grace, power, wisdom, and the spirit. There is nothing difficult about them. You don't have to go to seminary to uh, understand them. In fact, the more seminary you get, the less you're going to understand these things. They're available to average, everyday believers like you and I. So let me make one observation. Perhaps they build upon one another. I'm not saying that they do for sure, but a lot of times when we have lists of things in Scripture, they build on one another. If you have grace, perhaps the rest will follow. And too often, Christians are characterized by things other than grace. You don't have to look very far to find Christians who are judgmental and condemning at some level. Probably the worst example we can think of in our culture today is this group that uh, goes around picketing everything. And, you know, they go to the funerals of homosexuals and lesbians, and they have those signs that say, God hates fags. Now, one thing I'm sure of is that Jesus didn't have a robe that had a sticker on it that said, God hates fags. God hates sin. He loves sinners. And he deals with issues of the heart. And so, you know, and, and that's an extreme example, of course, but, you know, there, there are times even in our own lives we find ourselves, you know, to be very condemned. We have our own, again, in our own little language thing that we do, making fun of people, certain political people, and uh, certain celebrities. I know for a while it was common to call her Ellen Degenerate, and uh, you remember that? And Christians, you know, we're, we're really, really reaching people that way, I, uh, you know. <laughs> and so we want to be a little bit careful, you know, with that kind of sarcastic humor. But even when we seem to understand grace, there's a tendency to become distracted. We get caught up in other things that are not the main thing. I'm going to get flamed for saying this, but we get caught up too much in the politics of our world. Be a good citizen, vote, affect the election, do all of that. But when it's all said and done, the government is not going to save you. Jesus has to come back and take us out of this world and everything that we talk about in our prophecy updates, it's going to happen. Uh, and you know, So our hope is not in the next Christian president. We've had a few Christian presidents. Our world is pretty messed up. Some of them have been good men. Some of them haven't been as good of men. Uh, if you ask me, do I want to have a Christian president? Absolutely. But the world kind of grinds along. And, and so far, our Christian nation, I, mean, I know I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to not be here. I won't be at the door. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, our hope is not in the Christianization of a nation. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. It's, in a, it's not in democracy or a constitutional whatever. It is in a theocracy. It is in the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this planet. And so get involved, but don't get distracted. People need to be saved, not change their political alliances. They need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so that's why sometimes we, I think, aren't affecting the world like Stephen did because we're distracted in some areas over here. 
We should have the grace of our Lord who looked upon men as lost and in need of saving. And then we can be sure of the power we need to witness and the Spirit will use that knowledge, however limited, to reach them. Okay, I want you to quit hating me now and listen to the second point, which is verses 11 through 14. Look at the portrait that best captures you. The gospel always has an effect, just not the one we like. Stephen's works and words were about to get him killed. Verse 11, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Uh, I wonder how God and Moses feel about being in the same sentence together, you know? And somebody pointed out to me between services, you can't really blaspheme a man. I mean, you blaspheme God, and here it's like they elevated Moses almost to the place of, a, of God. He's blasphemed Moses and God. And, and so these guys are out to lunch. Even, and so it's possible Stephen pointed out to the freed men the fading glow of Moses as the fading away of the law. We don't know that, but it, it's a kind of thing that a first century uh, Jewish Christian would say. Even if he didn't use that language, he certainly described the failure of the law to save men and the need for them to be born again. Instead of seeing the connection between Jesus and their scriptures, they saw blasphemy. Secretly induced could be translated by our word suborned. We are most familiar with it in the phrase suborning perjury. Somebody, a bunch of people were being funny after first service and they said, how about suborny weaver? (laughs) Or how about the suborn identity? I said, said, those are lame. Anyway... (laughs) So you would suborn perjury, and that means you obtain false testimony from a witness. And so they were suborning people to say that Stephen was blaspheming. He really wasn't, of course. He was simply debating from the Scriptures. One application for us, use God's Word and not your opinions. And then when people are against you, they are against God, and you can tell them that. On our Caltech class, the current one on, on uh, evangelical theology, we're using a textbook that, that starts with the things that all Christians agree upon in a particular doctrine, and then the many areas of disagreement among Bible-believing Christians, areas where we need to agree to disagree agreeably. And, and that's, it's refreshing to, to see that kind of wisdom. Now, when we're talking to people who are not Christians... Uh, We want to concentrate on things that are absolutely true, not just our opinions. Bible prophecy is a big area where we kind of get off. That's why I try to be careful in our updates to say this is what the Bible says. Isn't it interesting that we see this happening? But I don't know if that's what that is or not. When I mention Javier Solana, the head of the EU, I'm not saying he's the Antichrist like some people are. Because when he turns out not to be the Antichrist, like every other guy that was supposed to be the Antichrist, then people are going to think that you're a sensationalist weirdo. And, you know, and we don't want that. We do know that there will be an Antichrist and, and that these things will unfold. And it's interesting to see how the world is working out. In every area, when we're talking to people, if we want to get people mad at you, make sure they're mad at you because of what God says to them and not because of what you say to them and how you say it. Otherwise, you just need to apologize and then try and get back to what God says. I've experienced this from time to time 
and, and I'm a little bit sensitive to it because of having to officiate at the funerals of unbelievers or, or people who you just, you know, the, the only hope you have is in the last fleeting moments of consciousness they called upon the Lord and were saved, but every other indication is that they were lost. You want to be very careful that when you preach the gospel, uh, you're saying what God says and keeping, because people come up and say, are you saying that my relative or friend is burning in hell right now? It doesn't do me any good to say, well, actually, they're in Hades and uh, begging for water. I mean, you know, I, I, not a good time. Hell is reserved, you know, in the future. I mean, and so you want to be a little bit careful. And so what I'm able to do is say, I'm telling you what God says. Let's read this together. Let me read this. And, you know, and what I'm really saying is that you have a decision to make. And so it, it can be very interesting, to say the least. So if people are going to be mad at you, make sure it's because of the word of God. And so... Verse 12, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. You see how the violence and the, and the opposition is, is increasing against the message of, of uh, the gospel. And now this is the first time people in general are coming against. The, uh, up until now, it's just been the religious leaders. Now the general populace is starting to become offended by it. And so they drag Stephen to the Sanhedrin. He was saying the same kinds of things Jesus said. He was doing the same kinds of things Jesus had done. He said and did them all in the same spirit. It should come as no shock, therefore, that he would be treated the same way Jesus was treated. If you're like your Lord, you will in some measure be treated like him at some point in your life. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. What a tragedy. I mean, I know he ceased from doing that because he was performing signs and wonders, probably healings among them. And, and, and you know, the idea they're giving you is that as, P, as Stephen was being used by God in a remarkable way to heal people, he was blaspheming the temple. Temple's going to fall, yeah, you know, and stuff. And, and, I mean, they're painting this terrible portrait of him as this evil person. Same thing with Jesus. I mean, how can you be upset with Jesus? He's healing people, setting people free from demonic possession. Blind people can see. Deaf people can hear. The mute people are talking. I mean, you know, I was watching some miraculous healings on Christian television last night. Oh, what a fraud. I can't, I wanted to go through the television. Just one poor lady, you know, she's got a walker and, and, and the minister comes up and, you know, he, he uh, sees her walker and he grabs the walker and he throws it on the stage. Get up, sister, and walk. And, and he helps her to get up and she's real shaky. And, and then she's walking, you know. <laughs> I can walk. And she gets about halfway up, and then they help her back to her seat. Whoa, man. If, if that's what it means to be healed, I'll keep my walker. I mean, that's not a healing. There, there's no leaping and jumping and praising God. And all of the healings they showed were like that. It was insanity. And so here's Stephen. He's healing people, or at least you know, he's doing other miscellaneous signs and wonders, you know, and, and they're accusing him of blaspheming and they're overlooking it and they're, they're skewing his portrait. And it's, it's very sad. 
Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and uh, change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He warned the Jews that it would be destroyed if they rejected it. I'm laughing right now and I can't tell you why. But, uh, (laughs) because I'd have to bust somebody. But anyway, they didn't know it. But they were just about 40 years from its destruction by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, as for the customs which Moses delivered, Moses himself spoke of a prophet who would come after him and fulfill the law. It wasn't a change so much as it was a fulfillment. So all this is made up stuff. It's it's like when you talk to your relatives and, and you've been as clear as possible and they think you've said something completely off the wall. And, and they don't understand because there's a blindness, a spiritual blindness, and they only hear, you know, they can only understand so much in their fallen condition, and then there's all this demonic activity around them trying to keep them from really seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this builds up to the real portrait of Stephen. They've painted this portrait of Stephen. He's a blasphemer. He's trying to get the temple destroyed and upset the, you know, the Roman government and all of our... He hates Moses. He's a Moses hater. <laughs> Moses of all people. He's blaspheming God. All he does from morning till night is go around speaking words of blasphemy. What can I get for you, sir? Blah, 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 blasphemy. And make it a latte, you know, and stuff. And so he just, you know, he just, I don't know, it's a terrible picture. And so all of this testimony, and then, you know, I, I'm sure it didn't happen just like this, but then all of a sudden the camera, everybody's attention now is on Stephen. What do you got to say for yourself, Stephen? And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face glowing. Just, just beaming. I mean, and, 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 you know, there's not a person in that assembly that isn't thinking about Moses and the glory of God and the presence of God. How do you get your face to glow like that? Do you see his face? Yeah. What do you think? Is it a chemical treatment? Uh, <laughs> cucumber mask? <laughs> Whatever that is, I want some, you know. He's just beaming. And I think his face actually glowed because of the comparison to Moses. Otherwise, I don't know what this means. He had the face of an angel. Angel face Stephen. I mean, none of these people had ever seen an angel. So if you have the face, you know, and, and in their culture, that's what that meant. Even if his face wasn't glowing, his traits would shine against such a dark background as they had portrayed and they would leave a portrait in their minds of the glory of God. This is something you would never forget, this moment when you looked at this man who was being so falsely accused for so many great things, and there he was. Do you have a favorite picture of yourself? One that you think best captures you? Maybe not, especially as you get older. But you know what I mean. We talk sometimes about uh, pictures, you know, I want you to get my best side, which for me is backwards now, you know. It's a, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, gosh, some pictures. It's a good thing for editing software because you can do almost anything to your picture now. You have to be careful that it still looks a little bit like you. <laughs> you know, I mean, if people are going, 
double chin. I mean, you can take out a double chin. You can, you know, there's a lot that you can do. You know, these magazines that you shouldn't look at when you're in line at the store, but they're there. None of those people look like that. They're all airbrushed out. They're completely airbrushed. Oprah Winfrey, 3,000 pounds. No, I'm just kidding. But everybody's airbrushed to, to look as good as they can possibly look. And, and so, you know, maybe you have a favorite picture, maybe you don't. It's a weird mental exercise, but I want you to think about your spiritual portrait, okay? What would it look like to others if, if you could take a spiritual picture of yourself? Would there be a glow because of these traits against the background of your life? Whatever that background is, would you be shining in the midst of that background? Or would it be hard to see you in the shadows? Here's my spiritual portrait. Where are you? Oh, that outline. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not a very good picture. As opposed to, you know, what do people see when they see that? Do they see Jesus glowing through you or do they only see the background of what's happening in your life? The traits we studied in this uh, passage, they are what make your spiritual portrait glow. See that they characterize you. Now, Stephen will give his defense in chapter 7, and then he'll be stoned to death for it. Chapter 8 begins with these words, Saul was consenting to his death. Saul is the apostle Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. It was Paul who wrote about, in 2 Corinthians, this fading glow of Moses being a spiritual picture of how the law would fade out, but how Christ in us would be a continual source of glory to glory as we looked into the mirror of the word. And you can't help but wonder... Was it this incident, this portrait of Stephen, that as he was under the inspiration of the Spirit writing 2 Corinthians, just, he goes, Lord, I want to put that in. This, it was so meaningful to me. Paul, we know he was there consenting to all of this. He may have even disputed with Stephen at one point in one of the synagogues and gotten leveled. Pharisee of the Pharisees, the smartest guy probably in the first century, but not a Christian at that time. And then afterward, he becomes born again, and everything falls into place for him. What does that mean to us? Well, Paul would not be saved that day. He would go on for a while and savagely persecute the church. But Stephen's testimony, we know, stayed with him because of how he writes in 2 Corinthians. It was a seed planted deeply in his heart. It was something he would never forget. You may not ever see the result of your testimony in a person's life, but it doesn't really matter. We should concentrate on the traits of being full of grace and power, speaking with wisdom in the Spirit. Then you will leave an indelible portrait in the minds of those who see and hear you. And one final thing, you don't even have to work really hard to do this. I mean, I don't think Stephen got up every morning and had these four things on his list of spiritual things to do. Be full of grace, full of power, wisdom, and the Spirit. Stephen just walked with Jesus Christ, and this was the outflow of his life. He became a Christian, 
He walked with Jesus Christ. He became a deacon. He walked with Jesus Christ. And the Lord said, you were faithful in small things. Let me give you some signs and wonders to do. And let me prepare you for martyrdom. And he just had a very normal progression of just walking with the Lord. And when people look back on his life, they can say, oh, these are the things that characterize that kind of life. It is all right for us to look at our life and at least, hey, you know, Lord, is my life characterized by any of those things? And if not, ask him to work in you and through you. God wants to do everything for us that he did for these guys, for these gals. They're not extraordinary men and women. They're not smarter. They're not stronger. They weren't more deserving. They're just people like us whom God wanted to use. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. And uh, I pray, Lord, that as much as we are able, we could consider what our spiritual portrait is, and we certainly know what we would like it to be. We'd like it to be uh, like Stevens, that the darkness of the world and of our particular life would be